So just to catch everyone up uh, from this weekend, I'm gonna try to do this pretty fast because we've got a lot, a lot to cover. So this weekend we've spent time, we decided as a church um, to want to spend time focusing solely on the gospel. And I know that's, a hard, that's even a hard statement to make because of um, we, can, we can connect so many things to the good news of Christ. Uh, but we focused specifically this weekend uh, just on so far on four things. We started the weekend in Romans 1 and 2 and understanding as it was put that the position or everyone, everyone's position from God apart from Christ is the same. Everyone's position or distance, that was the word, everyone's distance from God without Christ is the same. Unrighteous, under judgment, and condemned. You know, and Garrett mentioned, he's, he's like, I'm up here, uh, I can smile when I say that I'm talking about this, not because it's a a fun topic or a laughing matter or something that brings him joy, but in Romans 1 of knowing that he already knows that there is something that overcomes that, something, some power of God to overcome your unrighteousness. Romans 1.16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God it is God's power for salvation to all who believe. And so while we started in the, in the darkness of unrighteousness, all who are unrighteous, no one is righteous, no one seeks God, none are good, as we heard. We knew that there was good news. And so Saturday we spent time dissecting the good news. And it began with the life of Christ. We're, we're all pretty familiar with the death of Christ. But the life of Christ was necessary. It was necessary, and we looked at two main reasons. Number one, that heaven is not full of forgiven sinners, but full of forgiven sinners who are counted as righteous as if they lived their life without sin, justified before God. Now, where did that righteousness come from? But it came from the life of Christ. And as we, as we understood it, the great exchange, that which we receive from, from God through Christ is the righteousness of God and that which was, in, in, was poured upon the, uh, Christ on the cross was the wrath of God for our sin and our guilt, the exchange that for God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. But tied closely to that is the sacrificial death of Christ. So we have the life of Christ on this hand. We have the death of Christ on this hand. The death of Christ would mean nothing without the righteous life. Or as we might know it, the spotless lamb, the theme that we see in Exodus and also throughout the Old Testament. That if Christ had not lived that righteous life, if he had not been perfectly good, 
As we said, he would have been a condemned sinner upon the cross with the other criminals. And we would be able to see his grave today, and we would do it in our sin. But the man who hung on the cross was God. And the grave could not hold him, and we will look more at that today. And he rose from the dead. And this gospel we saw last night comes to us by grace through faith. And we also considered that faith, as Brother Dan mentioned this morning, isn't just about what we know. But hang on to that word because that word is really important. What we know. Not just because we say we believe something, Right? Uh, not just because um, we have done something in church that we can say that we have been saved by grace through faith, but that word really shows, the word faith really shows the idea of trust. Now, before I get too far, let's look back at our passage Romans 8 31. So we see 31, 32, 33, and 34, uh, a set of rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions. What do I mean by that? Um, questions that don't, that imply their own answer. That are actually presenting information, not wanting to draw information out of those who answer it. But I'm asking you a rhetorical question. I'm actually giving you the answer as well. And so Paul writes these questions to the churches of Rome in order to show them something. In order to show them something. So he begins, what then shall we say to these things as his transition point? And his first rhetorical question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, let's start with this. Who is us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Can anyone just claim this promise that's wrapped up in this rhetorical question? That if God is for you, nothing can be against you. It is for those and only for those who know God. Now, it's, I, I, I'm sorry, I said that just because you know something, just because you know and can, and, and can uh, memorize and say that you believe something does not mean that you actually have true faith. But there is this use of the word know in Scripture that says if you know if you know God you're a child of God if you know Christ you are in Christ this word know is used in ways that we typically don't k n o w right this word isn't typically used like we would use it i mean it does it is like i know how to go here i know how to do that but this word also represents something else in Scripture. Number one, 
To know something or to know someone specifically, a person, reveals that there is an intimate relationship between that which you know or who you know. For the sake of time, I won't make us turn there. Um, But if you remember when the angel came to Mary and said that she was going to uh, conceive, what did she say? But I've known not a man. That same word that we're talking about here, the same Greek word. I've known not a man. And then after even the angel came to Joseph, we see that all this took place when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He, he took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son. I think you, you understand my implication here. The intimate relationship is used, is seen in this word no in some cases as we look through Scripture. Uh, we think about the incident of Jesus walking down the road with his disciples and the crowds are gathered around him. And remember the story, remember the, the woman with the discharge, right? We see it throughout the synoptic gospels. And the, the same word, the same Greek word is used twice here. This woman who's got a discharge of the blood wants to come to Christ. She wants to touch Him because she knows something about Him. And it says, and immediately, or for, for she said, if I touch Him, even His garments, I will be made well. Verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt is that Greek word no? She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And then the next verse says, in Jesus perceiving, same word, knowing, knowing in himself that power had gone out from him. So when I say, just because you know something, just because you know God exists, just because you know that Jesus was sent to die for our sins, just because you know you're a sinner, does not make you a follower of Christ. It does not make you a child of God. As Toby told us last night, the demons know these things. But to know God is a different thing. If God is for us, who is this us but those who know God? As Jesus tells his disciples as he's praying the high priestly prayer, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you. The same Greek word, 
that they know you, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And if you look further in that prayer, as Jesus turns his attention to those whom would believe according to the word of the, the disciples that were around him, he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know me, so here we have a, dis a distinction. For if God is for us, who is us? Well, the world does not know him. I know you, the son says to the father, and these whom he's praying for, which would be believers after the apostles, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. It's a deep, intimate knowledge between two beings, a relationship. I have made them, I have made known to them your name. See, faith isn't just saying that we know. Faith, faith is something else. It's, it's knowing and then trusting um, in John 6, as Jesus is teaching, a large portion of the crowds walked away and left. Ones who had been following him. And they ran. And Jesus turned to the disciples, the, the twelve, and said, are you going to go too? And Peter said something that puts these two things together, knowing and trusting, or knowing and faith. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believed. We have believed. We have faith. We trust and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. For God, if God is for us, if God is for us, who is God for? God is for those like the woman with the discharge who aren't satisfied with just knowing that Jesus is in town. Those who God are for are not the ones who know that Jesus is in town and knows that he's got powers and, you know, maybe, you know, something will happen. But no, those whom God are for are those who know that Jesus is near and presses on toward him to touch him to have his power come from him into them. Those whom God are for are like Peter. When everyone else in your world is running from Jesus, and they, not, they might not be saying that they are, but they are, and how they live, how they talk, their desires, their goals, their life passions... It looks, they look a lot similar to everybody else. 
But you, like Peter, says, I've got nowhere else to go because I know who you are. I know that you are the Holy One of God. And in your words, who is he talking to? The Word. In your words is eternal life. That's who God is for. That's who God is for. For those who love him. If this hasn't been your reality to this point in your life, I pray the Lord convict you. I pray He convict you in this very moment, today, that He shows you that you have not known Him, you have not loved Him. And I pray that you might not be ashamed of that. And you would turn and confess that to him. And confess that to the church and to the world. And give yourself to him. And express that. And follow it in baptism. And be a part of the body of Christ. And to do that, you will be forgiven. You will be saved. Yes, if you do not know God in this way, you are not saved. You will be forgiven. You will be saved. And God will be for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? It's a rhetorical question, right? What's the answer? Nothing. Nobody. Nada. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, I've, I, I'm sorry, I already used a playground illustration during Sunday school. I'm going um, to do it again. I don't know why the playground was on my mind this morning and last night. As the kids on the playground, right, Kind of as we talked about this morning, who do we tend to gravitate towards? It's rough life on the playground. So who do we want to muscle up with, buddy up with? The guy everybody's got to look up to, right? The guy that everyone has can only look around. He's so big. Because if he's for you, ain't nobody going to get to you. He's going to say, he's mine. You got to get through me to get to him. No one dare come against God. They may try. They may want to. You know, and Satan's learned the hard way. And he lives daily knowing that what God is for, he can never, never come against. Look at Job. He wanted, he wanted Job so bad, and he wanted to prove God so bad that he could come against Job. God said, go for it. And you know what kept Job? Not Job. 
It wasn't Job. It was God. God kept Job. God was for Job, and Satan could not come against. He stands in the gap at constant guard, watching, protecting, keeping us under his divine care. And you might be thinking, and I know I mean this is this is who we are. Well, I'm going through this stuff in my life, because we all do. I'm going my finances look like you don't even want to know. I feel horrible. I can't get out of bed. You sh- my marriage is about to collapse. So in most places, in most sermons, the next statement would be, trust more, have more faith. But that's not what's promised to us. We're not promised financial health. We're not promised physical health. We're not promised um, stable relationships. We're not promised tomorrow. If, if you feel like God's not for you because of all these things, you're not looking at the right things. Your attention and your focus on that which will perish. Consider, consider what, um, what Paul said to the Colossians. If you have been raised with Christ, let me just say, if you have been raised with Christ, God is for you. Okay? If you have been raised with Christ, you are a new creation. You are a child of God. God is for you. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Your your cancer is not above. Your bank account is not above. Even your family is not above. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Do you know the things that are above are eternal? They are eternal. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. This is is helpful. Seated at the right hand of God. We'll hang on to that one. We'll come back to that later. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's difficult, because guess what? We're on earth. This is the beauty of it. You're on earth, but if you are raised with Christ, verse 3 in Colossians 3 says you have died. Not physically, not physically, but you have died and your life is hidden. You cannot find your life if you are in Christ in this world. You're not going to find it in your bank account or your marriage or your health. You're going to find it in the heavenly places where Christ is. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, because he will, when he appears, your life appears. Your everything appears. And you will appear with him 
and glory. Right? All of these things that we look at in this world come at us. If we look at it through the lens of this world, we will see no hope. I mean, that's what we've got in Romans 8, 28, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now you might say, but how does my bank account or how does this, like what is this purpose? What is this thing that I should be focusing on? Well, he tells us in 29, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his Son. This, this is kind of the divide here, the great divide. Do you have any desire to be like Jesus? Do you have any desire for holiness? Do you get a bad taste in your mouth when you stumble and sin? Does it make you sick? Do you look at Christ and say, I can't, but I will press on to make it my own, as I already said, because he has made me his own. This is the desire of someone who is in Christ, who sees God's will. What is God's will for your life, believer? Well, Thessalonians says it really easy. This is the will of your life, the will of God for your life, that you might be sanctified, that you might be set apart, not by a bank account, not by... Uh, the car you drive, the house you live in, but that you might be set apart by being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. As we gather that purpose and we make that purpose our own, the world will come against you. Your family might come against you. Your friends might come against you. Your own thoughts and doubts will come against you. If God be for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. The answer is no one. Verse 32, if he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, doesn't that just obliterate what I said? Not if you're seeing God's will for your life. If you are not seeing your, how does, how does he say it in Ephesians? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
When you read graciously give us all things, where does your mind go? To the material? Or that you might be His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now on to our next rhetorical question. Verse 33. I'll be honest. This next verse is difficult for me. It's difficult for me because what I say, you may not want to hear. And I could, I sat in my office this morning trying to figure out if I just was want to scratch it. And take this verse out. But then I wouldn't be doing what I preach. I wouldn't be seeking to give you the whole counsel of God, as Paul said to the Ephesian elders. There are things that God says, there are things that God does that are difficult for us to understand. They are hard for our minds to comprehend. But one thing we have to be sure of is that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. And so let's tackle verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You know that word, elect, that can make us uncomfortable. Um, we have great trouble with this word. To some it scares and we choose to ignore it. For some it brings anger. And they choose not to accept it. And we can understand that to a degree. The difficulty, the thought that, the thought that God elects opens up cans of worms we don't want to touch. And tends to make us uncomfortable. What's that word mean? What's that word mean? Uh, the Greek word, I'm not going to pronounce it for you because it doesn't matter. But the word in its simplest form means chosen. It's an adjective, right? It's describing a noun. It's describing a person or a people. Uh, back to the playground, right? Because I'm stuck in it. You're picking teams for kickball. I'm just, this example is just to help you understand the makeup of the word, not to give you some uh, divine truth, but just to show you what the word itself means. Uh, you're on the playground. You're picking for kickball, and, and you're a captain. And you know, you go around, and you pick, and you pick, you pick, you pick. You got your team. They stand behind you, and... If you were to use this word this way on the playground, 
You would say, this is my team. They are my chosen. They are my elect. Right? Because you had picked them and they stand behind you. That's what this word is, is meaning. So if your brain's starting to turn, you're thinking, okay, wait a minute, Luke. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen? Are you telling me that the Bible teaches that God chooses who's on his team? Yes. I'm not going to try to explain it to some degree, but we're going to read it. We're going to read some scripture. And I want you to go home. And I want you to read it. And I want you to think about it. And I want you to pray about it. And don't worry, we're not just doing this for the fun of it. It's here for a reason. Look at, go back to verse 28. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined. He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And now, uh, chapter 9. Verse 9. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca, so this is Paul reflecting on Old Testament story. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, how many did she have? Two. Twins. Right? One comes out before the other. And when not, not only so, but when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had not done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exhortation or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. And we could keep reading and we could go on forever, but that is not my intention today. Then you're kind of thinking in your mind, well, okay, if this is true, then I thought we were called 
I thought we were told to call everyone to believe and repent. And I thought everyone was responsible to believe and repent. But yet you're saying that God has an elect. Yes and yes. Yes and yes. The Bible does not present these two things as one or the other. The Bible presents these truths as two truths. Can I comprehend? Can I bring them together? Can I figure that out? No. But you know what else I can't figure out? I can't figure out how he made those stars. I can't figure out how in Acts 2, he tells me, Paul tells those Jews in Jerusalem that the cross of Christ, the murder of Christ that was done by Roman lawless men and they were being held accountable for it was the predetermined plan of God. Can I figure that out? No. Is it true? Yes. Do we run from it? No. These two truths are there. These two truths are there over and over and over again. And here's the last, the last thing I'm going to read just so that we can move forward in understanding why this is here in this passage. Jesus says in John 6, uh, Brother John read it for us yesterday. And you're going to see these two truths here. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes shall not hunger. Whoever believes shall never thirst. But no one will come to me unless the Father has given him to me. Jesus also says this thing in Matthew 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son. There's that word, that Greek word, knows. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. But yet, he says to the crowd, come to me. Come to me. So, why am I saying this? Well, let me, let me give you this thought before we move to that. There's a, I really like this, this picture, this mental picture that, that I got from, uh, from Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. He says, when you, when you come to the gates of heaven and you walk up to the gates of heaven on the front of the gates and it's big, beautiful letters, 
It says, whosoever will. And you walk into the gates and you turn and you look back at that banner and on the back of it, it says, chosen before the foundations of the world. They're both true. And they both show us and manifest who God is to us, who God is in his creation. And when we remove the one from the other or put more emphasis on one or the other, we, we change who God is. We make him who we want him to be. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Why are you telling us this? Why are we looking at it? It's because it's just there. I have to. And if I don't preach what's there, please just run me out. I've got to do something with it. And so you've got to do something with it. But here's the beauty. God is doing something with it. He does not write just to write. He does just not say it just to make the Bible longer. It's there for a purpose. Now let me tell you that. Let me tell you this purpose. And we've mentioned it before in this first part. You will walk out these doors today and everything will come against you and say you are not. You are not God's. You are not in Christ. Your own self will turn to you and say you are a wicked sinner. You deserve nothing. You read the, the, first, the middle portion of Romans 8, and that's what he's saying. That you will suffer. That you will, you will go through things that you can't understand. And it's going to come back at you and you're going to think, who am I? I am nothing. But you can look at Romans 8, 33. And you can remember the sovereign electing love of God that says, you are my child. And if you are my child, who is going to dare come up to you and charge you with anything? What does he say? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Who is it to condemn? They will come against you. But the truth of God, this verse in 33 can remind you, can remind you of who you are in Christ. God says, know this. You stand behind me. You are mine. Loving, loved, chosen, kept, kept. None will defeat you. None can condemn you. Who is it to condemn we started Romans 8.1, right? It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where does that come from? Where does no condemnation come from? 
Not your it your removal of condemnation, the 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 takeaway of judgment and wrath upon you is has not come to you because of what you have done, because of what you have thought, because what you have known, what you have gained, but because you were chosen even when you were in sin, even when you were a rebel against God. He says, let's get off this whole team and playground. He says, I am your shepherd. I am your shepherd. I will guard you and keep you. He said that before, right? John 10. It's an interesting conversation he's having with the Pharisees. So let me back up just a second. We've spent all weekend on the gospel. On who we are apart from it. On this righteous life of Christ. On this death of Christ. On faith. This is the completion of it. This is the application of it upon who you are in your life. That seals you in the finished work of Christ. In the plan and purpose of the Father. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is it. This is the gospel. So look what he says in this context in chapter John 10. With these Jews. Verse 22. At the time of the feast of dedications took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him to say, here's their question to Jesus. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Come on, man. Just tell us. Jesus answered them. I told you. I told you already. But what? And you do not believe. You do not trust. And then he says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And here's kind of what Paul's getting to. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. If God is for you, who can be against you? If he has given up His Son for you, how will He not graciously give you all things? Who will bring a charge against my sheep? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And none, 
No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. This is the same line that Paul is preaching as Paul is getting at. My heading in my Bible says God's everlasting love. It's a good heading. Father, mother, do you love your children? And say you do. Would you do anything for them? I slammed the door on my littlest one's hand today. What does that tell you? to tell you my love for my son it, it just it gets interrupted by my ignorance my arrogance by my lack of patience the love of god is perfect it's everlasting so what we've discussed so far is What we've discussed so far has been a bit of a past security. Things that, have, things that we know have taken place in the past that we can rest in and find, find peace and security in. But today, at this very moment, for those who are in Christ, you are still being held in His hand. Huh? We're still being held in His hand. No more condemnation, forgiveness. Look at the rest of 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is just a really good, succinct explanation of the gospel. But it's so beautiful and so short in the way that it's presented. Christ Jesus, the one who died. The one who died for your forgiveness, who took on the wrath of God, which you deserve. The Son of God died in order that you might live. But here's where he, Paul just kind of lingers that out there because he's really trying to get to something else. I'm going to wrap this up. He's really trying to get to the crux of the matter. Jesus Christ, the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Who was raised from the dead because the grave could not hold him. Death could not defeat him. The wages of sin is death. Christ was innocent. Sin came into the world. Death followed to every man, every woman. So death spread to all because all sin, but not Jesus. 
Jesus Christ, the one who died more than that, the one who was raised because he is the God man, the holy one, the righteous son of God. But Paul goes even further and he wants you to know that he was just not raised from the dead, but he is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? He is indeed, indeed interceding for us all. And here's what he really wants you to understand. And I'm going to finish here and then just read the rest of this chapter. What does it mean that he is indeed interceding for you? He's not doing it for everybody. What is he doing in heaven at the throne? He's representing those who love him. He's standing. Now, forgive me for my human language here for not being able to say this, but just saying it on human terms so we could understand it. He is standing at the throne of God before the Father, reminding the Father constantly, these are your treasured possessions. These are your people. These are whom you bought. That is your son. That is your daughter. And the Father looks and says, on what grounds? And he shows him the marks in his hands. And the blood on his brow. And he says on on the grounds that I, I I am in them and they are in me. Now that conversation isn't happening back and forth. The Father and the Son are one. The Father does not need to be reminded of everything, but Christ in His position is there, seated at the, at, at, in the heavenly places, guaranteeing those who know God, who love Him, who keep His commandments, those who believe, those who have been born again, those who are in Christ, have eternal life. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Verse 35. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, if that stopped there, we would be in trouble. Because Revelation is very clear that Christ is the conqueror. So we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the icing on the cake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the represent, representation of the love of God, a love, that, a love that existed before he created us, a love that overcomes our sinful nature and our rebellion, a love that sent his son to take the, our judgment and wrath, a love that grants you faith when, you na- when your nat- natural self says no thank you, 
A love that changes your heart to lead you towards repentance, to lead you to do what he has commanded. A love that will never fail. John writes in John 13 that he loved the disciples to the end. And Paul writes to the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I don't know much. I don't know much at all. But this I know with all my heart. If God is for you, Nothing, no one can be against you. Nothing, no one can condemn you or bring a charge against you. You stand before God as righteous, you unrighteous sinner. And I myself, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, who is our conqueror and our victory. Let's pray.